Welcome back to the Unregulated Podcast. I'm Tom Pyle. And I'm Mike McKenna, a recent refugee from the White House. After a brief hiatus, we are back with our uh, podcast. To catch everybody up, we started Unregulated in September of 2019. A few things have happened since then, one of which was my co-host, Mr. McKenna, decided to, to sojourn over to the White House for a brief stint. And we had this little epidemic called COVID-19. Uh, so, uh, lots to catch up between then and now, but I uh, thought we would uh, get this, pick this back up now that uh, Mr. McKenna is no longer a White House, very important White House guy. Mike? Deputy Assistant to the President, please. Sorry about that. Please. Sir, the Honorable Mike McKenna. The Honorable, exactly. That's the tag you want to use. So what do we want to talk about today, Mike? What's on your mind? We want to talk about what everybody else on the planet wants to talk about, which is the incredibly important, most important election in the history of civilization, the, without a doubt, the most important year in the Anglo-Saxon, English-speaking world since 1066. That's good. We can start start there. How would you like to lead this conversation? Oh, we should also mention that uh, you are now a esteemed columnist at the Washington contributing Times. editor again and contributing get your editor. title right would you please yeah so about so one of your columns what I, do you, where do you I want don't. to start we were talking well yeah sure so we were we, we were having dinner last night and the person we were having dinner with um when i suggested the president might not win she who shall remain unnamed she who shall remain unnamed uh when i suggested the president might not win she seemed like a person who had been you know had their dog run over and and i thought that's an odd odd reaction for a grown person, right? It's not a personal rejection. It's just the voters probably want to do something different. And that's just the way the world is. Um, you know, we're, we're 55 days out, 54 days out now. Is it possible that something happens? It's possible. But keep in mind, we have people voting now. And about 60% of all people are going to vote somewhere other than the voting booth, right? So about 135, 130, 35 million voters. About 80 million of them are going to vote at home, right, or somewhere else. So, and that's starting to that's starting to happen already. By the end of this month, we'll probably have about 15 million voters have already made up their minds, right? So a little bit better than 10%. What I'm saying is, if something's going to change, it needs to change now, right? It, it's not going to have an opportunity to change later on. Um, and the other thing is, I know that the White House is putting, the campaign rather, is putting a great amount of stock in these debates. We're going to have one debate, and that's that. We're not going to have three, right? Uh, but they already announced three moderators or three uh, debate moderators. They've got the whole thing sort of lined up. So how do, how do, they, how do the Democrats undo that? How does anybody enforce that? It, are we going to take them to court? The, so... The bottom line is so Biden's going to finish the Biden, first debate. Biden's going to just say, sure. I'm done. I don't want to do any more. That's right. He's going to finish the first debate. He's going to be like, eh, I don't feel any compulsive urge to talk to this guy anymore. I'm done. Peace out, bitches. Mm. So, um, you know, the chances of him making a mistake in the debate is minimal, but I know that's what the campaign's relying on. The other thing the campaign's relying on is their ground game, right? Which is demonstrably better than the Democrats, but, you know, 2,000 field workers. Um, that sounds like a lot. Even if each one of them brings you a thousand new voters, that's two million um, voters. Um, you know, in a situation which the president probably going to, you know, is going to certainly trail by somewhere between four and eight million voters. Another two million voters gets you closer, but probably doesn't win. So it, you know, the math is um, the math starts to have a velocity and a force all its own. 
So uh, what's different between this cycle and the last cycle with all the polling and with all of the sort of hidden Trump voters? And how does this layer of sort of unease about the, the situation out in, you know, various cities with the, all these protests and rioters and, mm. and people going yeah. into like restaurants and like, you know, wagging their finger in people's faces. I mean, that, that stuff's getting around. I know the media is hiding a lot of it. Um, maybe it's sort of just me reading my own material, but um, I feel like that's that's a, a factor that should probably be weighed into the conversation. Yeah, I think so too, right? And, it, you know, my, my big theory on this race has been that um, if it was just a blind taste test between policies, president would win 60-40, right? But it's not. It's a, it's a vote on personalities, right? Um, you know, and... and Vice President Biden has been really careful about making sure that he preserves his personality, his, his persona of regular dude and not get drawn into the um, into the darkness of the communism and collectivism that is, is en enveloping the Democratic coalition. Right. Um, it's not clear to me that the protests are having that much of an effect in the big scheme of life. Right. Because if you think about it, they're occurring in places where the Democrats um, lead is going to be sturdy. Portland, Los Angeles, New York City. You know the, the yeah, but only, that the only... I understand that part, but that is not. It's not necessarily the people in Portland who are going to flip. It's the people in Peoria who are going to see what's going on in Portland and say, you know what, this guy is a a real like challenge for me on a personality yeah. level. But this is this is sort of happening. Yeah, because the Democrats essentially welcomed it with open arms. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm just telling you, you know, we've been we're we're coming into month four of this, um, and the uh, and we, we're coming into month four. Right, I think Portland's a day number like 110 at this point, and we only just recently got a statement out of Biden that it's bad, right? So, um, you know, last week, so you know, it was pretty deep into it, um, and the effect on on the survey data as to who is going to win uh, has been negligible to not, a, we have not been able to find it. So yeah. if it's there, it's hiding really well. And, you know, the, the other thing about, oh, we got a lot of shadow Trump voters. It's possible. It's possible, but it's not likely. Yeah, so at good. dinner last night, you said. Um, Keeping in mind, I was drunk. I don't think you were drunk. I had more wine than you did, but. But at dinner last night, you said that there's there there is potential for some hidden variable here that we don't know about. Clearly, since we don't know about it, you don't know what it is. Sure. But can you speculate on what those an example of that could be? Yeah, I think I think that um, the big risk. If I'm a Democratic strategist, there's three things that keep me up at night. Right. One of them is, uh, you know. Vice President Biden has a moment that's that's unexplainable, right? That's so bad that it's clear he's not non compos mentis, right? So in that in that regard, I, I said that the, that the media is doing a really good job of hiding hiding Biden. Sure. Okay. And if that happens, then people will start to poke around mm. the Googles and everything and say, "Wow, there's a lot more of these clips." Right. Because I know I'm seeing them, but you know I'm, they're being fed to me by my my friends who are also in the base. Yeah. Right. Um, so but that is not permeating out there. It's just amongst us. 
Yeah. At the right. moment. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's right. And I'm not talking about a senior moment where he babbles, right? Because he's been babbling since he was about 35, right? I mean, this is a guy who's been in the racket since he was a child, right? Um, so, you know, the babbling is, is not a problem. I'm talking about a legitimate moment where he um, forgets where he is um, or forgets who he is, that kind of thing, right? Um, something that's a, almost an instant disqualifier for president. Um, so that's uh, possibility number one. Possibility number two is, is that they're, you know, if I'm a Democratic strategist, thing number two that keeps me awake is the there really is a great big giant Trump quiet vote hiding out there in mostly in rural America, but in really bad places for me, like in rural Minnesota, in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, um, you know, that that is going to overwhelm my advantage, you know, give you some scale of this, right? In Pennsylvania, Democrats are going to win Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and its suburbs probably by about 750 to 800,000 votes, right? That's a lot to make up across the rest of the state, but, um, you know, it it's not insurmountable, right? If, yeah. if you, you know, President um, one Pennsylvania with about 45,000 votes last time. If he can find another 50,000 votes on top of that, he can win Pennsylvania. Yeah, and we've been spending most of our time in Pennsylvania because of sure. the contrast, well, the issue of uh, fracking and the Biden, you know, Biden's walk back on his frack right. ban and, and, and um, I mean, you know, Joe, Kamala saying, oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, there's no question. So, you know, it's, it's a clearly... Uh, uh, in play, I think Scranton Joe. You know, he claims he's from Scranton, um, and there's a little bit of residual there. But I've talked to folks in that area who have said no, they don't. He's not. A, he's not well, one of us. I mean, so I, I don't buy any of that business. I know that Biden is spending a lot of time in Pennsylvania because it's very close to his basement in Delaware. And a, um, you know, when you pan back on his on his press conferences, there's four people in the room, including two cameras. So. The contrast there, to me, is, is is evident, but maybe it's not filtering through. Like this guy is being shielded; he's being he's being protected. Uh, this is a, a textbook example of a campaign that, when we always joke about, like, okay, now let's just keep tell the candidate to go on vacation. Well, right, because we got this in the bag, and I just I, yeah. On the other hand, right, you know, you you when when somebody when somebody does something to you, you got to ask yourself, what did I do to make myself available to to be exploited, right? And it, you know, the thing about the thing about President Trump is, um, he's he's a problem in the campaign, right? right? You, you know, he, he's he not his policies, not his action, not what he's done, right? Not his activities. Um, you know, he personally is the problem and, and he is, um, you know, he's an attention, um, hound, right? He's got to be the center of attention. So, you know, the good Biden, or bad, good or bad, negative right? or positive, right? Sometimes it's been it's, his MO since he was, yeah, you know, it's, 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 doing his thing in New York, right? It, it's it, like, I think he bragged about the fact that his one number one goal is to get attention regardless yeah, of the type of right. attention that it is. Yeah, and, and a leopard's not going to change its spots, right. especially at the age of 75, right? So, right. So in a way, the Biden guys have constructed a campaign designed specifically to exploit that weakness. They're going to be like, you want to talk? OK, talk. Um, so, you know, when you think about that second thing I just mentioned that you're afraid if you're a Democratic strategist is that Biden's going to do something in public because you know, that's what the entire campaign is dedicated to, is to not let him do anything in public 
good or bad. It's the exact opposite of the Trump campaign, right? Yeah. You're just like, hey. And then the third thing you got to worry about. Um, if you're Biden. If you're a Democrat strategist, yeah, is, uh, is that there's a homicide involving police officers in a big city in a swing in a swing state someplace in in fairly deep into the campaign right october uh, kenosha seems like a, an example right kenosha is a good example but i'm thinking someplace more like philadelphia or miami um someplace where where it's immediate it happens and it can't be avoided right um you know kenosha and minneapolis were sort of smaller test runs of those mm-hmm. um the idea that Democrats can be able to um, forcefully denounce something like that in in the correct amount of time is pretty minimal. They're just not right. They're, 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 these riots, whatever whatever you think about them, whatever the Democrats think about them, they have been content to be silent on them. So 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 those are the three variables. Yeah. I'm thinking so about. so for me, you know, what I see is is in in its every cycle, I've seen it. Um, there's this drip of, of something really bad, quote unquote, that the media says Trump did or didn't do. And then there's all this immediate response to that. Like, it's amazing how something can come out, a Vanity Fair article about how Trump said that, you know, troops were losers. And then like, there's already commercials out like 10 minutes later. Um, and there's the Woodward thing which we can get into, but we probably shouldn't because then we'll start talking about senators that we don't you know, particularly uh, care too much about. Lindsey Graham. <laughs> and, and to me, I've just, I've been numb to it because it's like, it's the playbook, mm. the democratic playbook. Mm. And I think that people have been a little bit conditioned to it. And I don't know if, if that's, that's true or not. At least I have. Um, it's no surprise to me. The other thing that, you know, we can move off the election and I think maybe every episode we'll do a quick like, let me, let me do it this way. Right now. The Yankees are still terrible. No, no. Right now, game it out. What, what are, what's the percentage? Oh, you mean like the final end of the end of the day? No, no. What, you know, what, what percent chance does Trump have getting reelected right to, if the election were held tomorrow? One in three. Okay. So every week we'll go every week we'll go back to that question and we'll see if that changes okay. from your prediction. Yeah. Um, and, I want to talk and, about and, by the way, I've been at one in three for like six months. So So nothing's changed in your opinion. Nothing's changed in six months. Okay. Nothing that anybody can measure. Gotcha. So um let's talk about the post election universe. Um, I have seen this also in my in my years and years and years in this town. Uh the 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 ability for the Democrats to set up a big thing. Um, and it was no coincidence uh, several weeks back that Obama and John Podesta both within hours of each other said, well, you know, we really need to get rid of the legislative filibuster uh, so we can get some big things done. Um, we've seen this now just this week from executives who are clamoring for a carbon tax, for example. So, well, you know, uh, if, uh, if the Senate flips, then and if they get rid of the legislative filibuster, then we have an opportunity to jam a national energy tax down the throats of the American families. Um, are you seeing the same thing? Yeah. This, this is a setup for a carbon tax, right? As part of a sort of financial package. Gosh, we're in debt. 
Um, we, we definitely need to do something to plug that hole. We got all this COVID build back better business, which we can talk about build back better later, a textbook example of continued plagiarism by Joe Biden. But um, I'm seeing this clearly that they're setting the stage for this, for this. There's a crescendo building uh, for another run at a carbon tax uh, if they if all of those things happen. Yeah, let me let me just argue. Yes, I agree totally. Let me let me take let me offer one friendly amendment, and that is it's not going to be about um, filling the deficit hole. Right. Um, you It'll know, be offsetting the spending. Right. Exactly. Biden's been pretty clear about he wants to put a tax increase in his mind. You know, they, they're calling it a four trillion dollar tax increase or they've scored it four trillion might be as small as three and a half trillion, which would only make it um the largest tax increase in the history of the world instead of the largest tax increase in the history of the world. Um, and then they plan on pairing that with a, a minimum $2 trillion climate and infrastructure plan. Um, you know, whether that's all going to happen, going to be able to happen, I don't know. But you can't have that second one unless you pop the filibuster, right? you pop the 60 votes, because you could do the tax thing just on reconciliation. Yeah. But you can't do both on, on just on reconciliation, just not going to be able to. Um, That's a really big tax increase, uh, even on reconciliation. It, I mean, it, it, if the Senate flips, then as you've mentioned in the past, there's going to be, you know, Democrats in the Senate who are not going to want to play ball with all this Green New Deal business, right? In Arizona, you're going to have possibly two senator, Democrat senators from Arizona. Um, you know, if Biden wins... Then he brings obviously some Democrat, moderate Democrats, quote unquote, yeah, with him. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, if they take the Senate, Steve Bullock, John Hickenlooper, Cinema, Kelly, um, they're going to take the Senate because those guys won, right? And, and not Cinema, but you know, they they're going to start off with four or five senators on the Democratic side who are going to be very, very wary about first putting a bullet in the in the sixty votes. And then second, hey, here's your first legitimate vote in the United States Senate, four trillion dollar tax increase. Because at that point, you know, you're 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 starting to think, okay, what am I gonna do after this? Because you're never gonna you're never gonna be able to go back to a place like Montana yeah. and Arizona having voted for that stuff. Joe Manchin's the same way, right? Truthfully, Bob Casey in Pennsylvania is probably in the same boat, right? You know, because if the president wins Pennsylvania but loses the election. Casey's got to be thinking, hey, I'm on a short string too, right? So is know, he up again? Is he up at 22? I'm not sure when he's up, but it's either 22 or 24 because yeah. he's not up now, right? right? right. So um, it, it's a, it's a, after the election, it's going to be what it always is, right? Everybody who wins elections thinks this is going to be great. And it, it turns out to be okay. And everybody who loses is like, this is going to be apocalyptic. And it turns out to be merely annoying. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of downside, obviously, to Biden winning for the country. Uh, this, you know, the fact is that he's been captured by these Green New Dealers and everybody else. On the flip side, the midterms will likely be a disaster for Biden after that, uh, if he's even the president still, if it's President Harris at that point. Um, and on the other side of that coin, if Trump wins, then, you know, it could be pretty rough in the midterm. Yeah, I mean, the Democrats are not going to, I mean, we've heard already you, I don't know if you've seen some articles where they've basically already declared that the election will not be over on election day as a hedge for in case they don't win. Um, and then they've also declared that, you know, <laughs> this is, you ain't seen nothing yet 
if he gets reelected. So um, I don't know. Uh, I think the chances, let's put it this way. You just asked me what are the chances of the president winning. I say one in three. The chances of a disputed election, a legit disputed election where one or more states give competing or contrary or give no certifications to the House of Representatives, probably 50-50. Yeah. Probably one in two. I, and that's, that's going to be a serious, serious problem. Of course. Absolutely. It made, it made my time in Florida, it make my time in Florida look yeah. like child's play. Yeah, that's so. right. That was a relatively small problem centered around one county with a, with a definable um, universe of answers. So I, uh, I think we're going to go back to the prediction game here between Biden and Trump just for a second, because I want to uh, talk about my experiences this summer. I spent a good three, four weeks traveling this great country of ours. I was in nine states. Admittedly, I drove only drove through Idaho, but I was in Montana and Wyoming, and I was in Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and some rural areas visiting our, our wonderful national parks because I needed to get out of my house uh, after months of being in house arrest, thanks to Montgomery County. But I will say that I saw a diff. I saw a lot of support for President Trump still in rural, in rural America. And then I uh, visited uh, North Carolina recently as well, and um, all uh, this summer. And North Carolina is still very much Trump country, at least in the areas that I was at. So I, I don't know. Like I know that our friend at dinner last night, like practically shed a tear when you when you told her that she you didn't think that Trump would win. I trust your uh, assessment of the polling and the data and the numbers and everything else. But I go back to 16 where you and I both sat around in, in this room and other rooms in the office saying, I think this guy's got a chance here. Um, and I'm I'm still going to put I'm still going to put a little stock in that. I think that he's there is going to be a fairly significant silent vote. You know, folks who are not talking to the pollsters, folks who are not talking to their neighbors who are going to pull the lever and vote for the guys. So I think it's going to be pretty darn close. Um, I think it comes down to like if he doesn't win Pennsylvania, it's done in my view, because that's that's a trend for the rest of the states. But I I think Wisconsin's in play. Oh, I think lots I think of, Michigan's in play. I think lots of places are in play. Look, it, it's going one of two things is going to happen here in this election. Either the president's going to get reelected. Actually, let me amend that. One of two things is going to happen in this election. Either Joe Biden's going to get elected president or no one will ever pay for a survey again. Because we're not talking about what it was in 2016. You know, whether you looked at the average of surveys, you know, it was much closer than this all the way along, right? And it, it had a much more peaky it was closer than this. It was much closer than this. Okay. Yeah. You know, it was much it was much peakier, right? Where where Clinton would lead by, you know, an average of six and then Trump would lead by one and Clinton would lead by four. And, you know, and there were individual surveys along the way, most especially the USC LA Times track, right, that showed Trump's strength from more or less the beginning to the end, right? He was close in that from the from the moment the the LA Times track opened up. Um my point is, is that in 2016, there were indications of, okay, you know, some people are seeing things out there that are positive for the then candidate Trump, right? This is a totally different kettle of fish. 
Trump hasn't led in a single national survey since the middle of February, not one. Doesn't matter who's asking it, not one. The LA Times track has him down. I think last time I peaked was a couple of days ago. It was like seven points. The average has been really static. Biden's never led by more than ten or less than five. So you pretty you, you're you're what I'm hearing from you is it's pretty much cemented in. Like, I don't. Yeah, I don't. If it were held today, it would have. It would. If we're held in a week, it would, if we're held two weeks from now, barring that thing. Yeah, barring that right. thing. I so mean, these other little things are blips in the radar. The you know the Woodward thing is a day story. Well, that's Trump's going to get over it. I mean, that's the thing about the Woodward thing, right? And the Goldberg thing. Although the Goldberg thing in the Atlantic, somebody should probably ask for his resignation because that is clearly just a lie. Well, even the quote unquote confirmed the stories that confirmed the story, they didn't name any sources. Right. Nobody has named. Nobody well, has that, come out. Well, that's on not, the record that's not, to say that that happened. Well, the, the, the interesting thing is about that is. There have been more than 20 people who have come out on the record. Who said it didn't. Said it didn't happen, right? So the original story was, hey, four people four people with firsthand knowledge. Okay, firsthand knowledge is a term of art in the press. It means that you were there. You didn't get it secondhand. You, you were there. Yeah. You were in the room. You heard it, right? Okay. So we are now running out of people who are in the room, right? There was The only person who was in the room who has not been heard from is, is uh, General, Gen- General Kelly. And... I have the utmost respect for General Kelly, but he is not four people. He is one person. Sure. And, you know, I do not understand why the White House has not, assist, you know, basically insisted the Atlantic identify the four people. That's right. Because they can't. That's right. Because it's a lie. Um, but the larger thing is the Atlantic, Bob Woodward. Yeah. I mean, we had all this stuff in 16, too, with the Bush, Billy Bush. And, it, you know, it was all like, you know, it's not good, but it's it's, it's part of the process. It's, it's noise. It's not a game changer. It's noise. It it, it entertains. It entertains. Um, it entertains the people in D.C. and amuses the people in New York. And literally no one else in the country cares right. about it because you know what? Nobody's hiring a guy on the basis of how well he speaks. And nobody's on Twitter either, except for us. Right. It's, it's And reporters it's, who it's, talk to each other. Right. And by the way, who should you should take a close look. If you have a... If you're in this business and you follow Twitter and you follow reporters, it's not very difficult to see where they where they bend on the issues that they're covering, especially in our circles. It's unreal to me how they just barf all over Twitter about their views about these issues. And yeah, I don't, it's, I don't understand how editors allow uh, that to happen. Well, the funny it's thing strange. Is, the funny thing is, is that editors in, in mainline organizations, news organizations, have for years forbidden political activity, right? You can't go to rallies. You can't go to marches and all this other stuff. And then they go on Twitter. And as you point out, they just throw up all over their shoes. The Mike Allen, um, who runs RAN, Axios, um, like always, has been smarter than most people. Because he he banned his reporters from Twitter, the Axios guys don't. Amy Hard- Harder is no longer only, on Twitter. I didn't even realize the only that because I have to stop no, reading no, no. her stuff. No, so. the only thing they do on Twitter is they they um they tweet out their stories. That's the only thing they're allowed to do. They're they're, they're allowed to tweet their stories and retweet their colleagues' stories. They're not allowed to like spiel. And oh, E and E spiels, man. Yeah, those guys spiel. Those guys and gals, I guess uh, these days the the. Those persons spiel. It's, it's it's crazy to me how, how they can get away with it. it. But it, it's and Politico and all these other. It's incredibly informative because it tells you, like you say, where everybody's actual biases are, and that's cool. Everyone's got biases, 
you know, it's the it's the pretend, it's the pretension that I don't have a bias. Yeah, I'm a neutral observer. Yeah, it drives me crazy. Dude. And the other thing that drives me crazy is there's this sort of ingrained, fixed sort of conversation around the climate issue, which is basically just you know, as we've talked about many times, is just a umbrella for all their whole agenda. Is that the default is that oil, coal, and natural gas have no redeeming qualities whatsoever in the conversation. None. Ever. There's yeah. never a discussion where there's a redeeming quality from any of those sources. And it's just, we just go along with it. We just go along with it. Well, it's funny you say that, right? Because I was thinking about that while we were going back and forth over the two banning conversations in the last two weeks, right? Biden banning whether Biden is in favor of banning fracking in Pennsylvania or not, or everywhere, right? Nobody on the left, no reporter on the left, hit him when he took four giant steps backwards on it. They said, what are you talking about? You know, this is a great thing. It's a virtuous thing, right? Because they're all, not all, but a lot of them are in the sack for, for Biden, right? Um, and then when the president banned production off the southeastern coast of the United States this week, nobody said a word about Hooray, that's great oh. because these things are terrible. Yes, um, well, le I was afraid you were going to bring that up because I've been dealing with it internally, uh, emotionally. This was a really bad move by President Trump. It was a really, really bad move uh, for a whole host of reasons, but primarily because it really just delegitimizes all of the efforts that he's made to you know, take this whole idea of a ban anywhere off the table. I'm not saying you have, we had to do it tomorrow, um, but what it does point out is that the leasing process is com wholly inadequate and completely like driven by politics, and it needs to be scrapped, and it needs to be replaced with a system that does not subject itself to the whims of the political cycle. Yeah. Uh, it's it's not a good idea to blanket ban places that are available for lease. Um, let the process work its way through. This doesn't help anybody but a couple of politicians who, who think that they're going to curry favor with this crowd. And like you said, even the Greens were like, yeah, whatever, this is just a cynical ploy, but he still did it. it and it, he doesn't get any credit for it whatsoever. Yeah, well, I, I, I too do not give him any credit for it because it is a, it deserves no credit. It's bad. Um, right. You know, we, we literally... A couple of months ago, passed the Great American Outdoors Act, which, which was I, another not which so another, great. Which thing. I had very serious reservations about, but but the 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 underlying foundational point of that legislation was that the monies that we derive from offshore resource extraction are going to be shared across the fifty states in various formats. Right. So, in other words, we the people all 315 million of us own that offshore property, right? It's not owned by the state of Louisiana. It's not owned by the state of Texas. It's not owned by the state three of- Three miles offshore. Yeah, it's, it's- After three miles. Yeah, the after state owns the first three yeah. miles. It's just not, it's not owned by these guys. It's owned by the United States. And what the president did and what, you know, Joe Biden would do, is will do the same thing if he's president, would do the same thing if he's president, right? When you yield to state preferences on these questions, it's a bad idea because it, it somehow 
it includes two ideas inside of it. One is that oil and gas are bad. And yeah. two is that the state has some say over this. And they don't. And they shouldn't. And that's the conclusion I've come to after years of watching this. The leasing program's totally broken. The political process around it is totally broken. And it is, as you point out, a, um, a convenient excuse for people to do what they think they need to do politically. That said, what the president did this week was especially grievous because he knows better. That's right. And and th- that is uh, it's a really important point, because what I have said and you have firsthand experience with it is when given the freedom to run with his instincts. President Trump is right on a lot of these issues on a lot of these energy issues in particular. When he gets twisted, when people start, you know, coming up with these, oh, you know what, if you do this, you'll be the, you'll be a better environmental president than Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, I, I, then I, he starts. Yeah, I go one further than that. He starts to he starts to go against his instincts and it doesn't serve him. In the long run, and it's it, it shows with with this week and a couple other decisions he's made in, in our space. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll go one further than that, right? It, you can always tell a bad idea. It always originates outside the White House. It's always some some phone call from a friend or to a friend who who puts a bad idea in in the mix, and then it gets hard to get out. And this is one of those things. And I know the two guys who did this; they both sit in the United States Congress. Um, and it was, and, and both of them are not our friends. Right. I, I want to say, uh, back up and say that the, this was one of three uh, really bad, really bad moves by the president in our space. The, the other one is obviously the LWCF permanent funding, which basically is takes all congressional oversight out of the process of acquiring federal land and gives it a huge uh, you know, injection of cash. We don't need to buy more federal land in this country. We have, the federal government already owns a third of the land. And if you add the offshore, it's a significant uh, amount of, of property that the United States owns. Some states have 90, Alaska, for example, has about 97% some sort of a government ownership or tribal ownership, 3% private property. Some states are just swimming in federal land. California, people don't realize half the, half the state is federal land. Yeah, well. What what that does is you, know, you create a system where, you know, the Democrats are all about equity. It's discriminatory. When you start, you know, imposing bans on production uh, on federal land, you're basically discriminating. A certain, you're picking winners and losers among the states because of the fact that they have federal land in it. So the LWCF permanent funding was a mistake. This was obviously a mistake. The third thing that was a mistake was this this pebble mine business. Yeah, well, we haven't really they haven't made the mistake. They haven't yet, made it yet, but, but, but they're they, edging towards the mistake, right? And they've made it hard, made it easier to make the mistake. And I hope that this uh, is a lesson to folks about guys who worked in the White House who aren't supposed to be lobbying. I think the situation will straighten itself out, but again, it points to the fact that you're right. Forces outside always, always, always come into play. Always, every terrible and throw him off, and he—you could tell when he's not really buying it either, because he said, "Well, they tell me, yeah. they told me that if I do this, just, it would be X or Y or Z. Just you, you know, you you will win a lot of money 
betting on the origin of terrible ideas if you just start with, hey, it started with a phone call from outside the White House. So don't you, get me wrong. The I, I mean, the, and I the, say this, I say this because you know, you know, inside guys like 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 you know Jared Kushner tend to get the brunt of a lot of conservative abuse. But the truth of the matter is, they probably more aligned with most conservatives than the stuff he gets than the president gets from outside. And, yeah, and that's you know that's the you know that that that's my limited experience. But it I it, it I saw it repeated time and time again. The other truth of the matter is, and this is this was this is evident to me in in the COVID situation. It is evident to me in the the lurch to the left uh, amongst uh, the trade association community in this town, uh, and I'm talking specifically about the Chamber of Commerce. In this case, is that big business is not interested in Main Street at all is not concerned, tuned in, could care less. I it's it sickens me to see what's happening with small business in this country uh, versus the big box stores and the big businesses. And then on top of that, you have a, a situation where you have the Chamber of Commerce coming in and, and endorsing 23 de- Democrat uh, members of Congress yeah. who are largely sitting in competitive races. Yeah. Who's, who is basically coming out and saying, okay, well, a vote for this guy gets reelected. Who does he vote for, for Speaker of the House? Either Nancy or, or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right? Yeah. Is there what? When's the last time a bill went to the House floor that didn't pass? So I got into this with a reporter on Twitter, uh, Zach Coleman, who said, well, you know, the chamber... The chamber, you know, are you saying that, that she can't be judged on her individual votes? Because he, he ID'd a, a, the woman from New Mexico. I can't remember her name now. Torres Small. Torres Small, who, who doesn't support a banning on fracking. Well, she'll vote for Nancy. And if they bring a ban, a fracking ban to the floor, she'll vote no, but it'll still pass. I was going to say. So, yes, it is monolithic it, in it, the House of Representatives. It, it always has been. You know, you shouldn't. You shouldn't argue with children, right? Because it doesn't doesn't make you feel any better. Doesn't get them any smarter, right? Um, it if you need to explain that that the the principal vote we take nowadays is the organizational votes at the beginning of Congress, then you're dealing with somebody who's who's um, either been out of the game for thirty years or has never gotten into the game, right? Or doesn't really care to be accurate about the game right you know but my experience very few people want to be wrong they just don't know and and it's impossible to explain to them that you know the house doesn't exist as a deliberative body it never really has not in my experience right it's a a hierarchy it's an oligarchy really run by um, leadership and occasionally the odd committee chairman yeah unfortunately it's gotten a lot worse since when i was there back in actually back uh, in the 30s easy. I had an interesting exchange with a reporter who asked to remain off the record, and I've long since forgotten who it was, so it's not a problem, who asked me if he could chat with me about a subject that he's not familiar with. It was a conference committee. Yeah. He had no idea how a conference committee works, how it's run, what the outcome could be. He needed a one-on-one conference committee, uh, you know, and that is a sad state of affairs. I remember we I, we had a conference committee. God, what is it? A couple of years back, I had the same kind of conversation, and 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 it 
the, for the first 30 seconds, I thought they must be kidding me. But then I thought, well, was the last time, time. was the last time it I saw a been. conference, right? And, you know, you think about it. Now the proxy voting's installed. That problem gets worse. Is that going to go away? No. Is, no, because it's now permanent. No, because members have discovered that they can go do other things and don't need and to come to town. It's just like vote harvest, ballot yeah. harvesting. It's, it's vote it, harvesting. It's ballot harvesting for lazy members. Yeah. You know, and you saw, you saw. Um, we have seen since the introduction of proxy voting, we've seen members spend their time on, you know, at the beach, you know, jet skiing, whatever. You know, it, it's going to be more and more frequent because now you can. You can be registered as having voted and not have it come to D.C. And that's for people who are busy, raising money, talking in the district. That's just too appealing, right? You're eventually going to start handing off your votes. Hey, you know, to your chairman, to your to your, to your your deputy whip, to guys like that. Hey, Tommy, I'm a yeah on this thing and a no on that thing. And I'll see you for beers on yeah. Tuesday, right? So, yeah, we were chatting at dinner last night about Senator McConnell when they took the Senate back promising to have, you know, a return to, to order, regular order. And the first and only open uh, bill with open amendment process was the Keystone. Yeah. One bill. Yeah. And it, it ended. Because it turned into a romper room and everyone's tolerance for romper room is pretty, it's, is, is, has become remarkably reduced over the years. The, the funny thing is, and the terrible thing is, is these are the same people who will, complain about the deterioration of the legislative branch as a co-equal branch. They don't understand that they've those, done it to themselves. Right. That Absolutely. Those, those two I've, I've things. I've been on are, that jack for yes. a long time. They have destroyed that branch. Yeah. They, they have destroyed it within itself. The, uh, the fact of the matter is, is when I was up there and I'm not saying it was better, uh, I'm not waxing fondly about my days in the Hill, but the process was still, that you tried to do 13 individual appropriation mm -hmm. bills. And an omnibus, a big ass spending bill was three or four bills. Yeah, cobbled together. you do a consolidated. Approach. That was a huge piece of legislation. Yeah. I don't think we've actually had a regular budget process at least this decade we, and going into uh, the late 90s. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll. Um, I'm sorry, the 2000s. No, 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 I'll talk my book. We did for, have them in the late 90s. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk my book for a second, right? Uh, the only consolidated appropriations process I'm aware of where we had four separate bills, that high a number, was the year that was last year when we did it, right? We did it. We, we did four separate bills. It was pretty close to regular order. It was like normal. But you had an extraordinarily competent White House legislative affairs. Oh team yes, last of course, year. absolutely. So, you know, it, Who's it, been decimated, uh, by the way? Unfortunately, it, it is what it is. But we're going to need to do something about the legislative branch at some point. I don't know what that's going to look like, but it can't go on like this indefinitely. Because eventually, at the rate we're going, you're going to have the guys are going to come in for one vote, just the organizational vote. And then they're going to go home. Five or six people are going to run the Congress. And that is not that is and not what we have seen. Has what that has done over the years. I mean, look. The bottom line is this: everyone keeps talking about how you know you started the episode with instrumental, important, most important election in the in our lifetimes. It is precisely because the Congress has handed, by virtue of the fact that they have they've completely destroyed that institution from within, they've handed that power to the administration. Why are Supreme Court nominations so important that they would drum out all these protests on a guy like Brett Kavanaugh, who, by the way, we weren't even all that fond of? Seriously. 
Nobody, the, the, the left galvanized the right for Brett Kavanaugh. He was our third, fourth choice. If that. At best. He was, he was, he'd have been a perfectly he, nice guy, bushy, right? Yeah. Like that was our assessment of him. And then all of a sudden, became, these guys come out of the woodwork and like, you know, he became a key vote for us. Right? Yeah. It um, was the thing. The point I'm trying to make is this. The reason that these votes, these presidential elections and these Supreme Court nominations are so critically important is because both the right and the left recognize that nothing, nothing of substance or meaning gets accomplished in the Congress any longer. And that and we have let these these other branches become that powerful as a result. They it is on them. It is on them as an institution. And it's sad because the place where regular people have the biggest voice yeah. is in is the House. The House of the People's House. Yeah. Last thought on this, right? The guys who should care the most about it seem to care the least. And that is the members themselves. And the guys who should care the second most care the least least. And that is the lobbyists in town. Oh yeah. If you're a lobbyist, I would think you would want a strong, vibrant legislative branch. If you're a conservative, I think you would, too, because I think that if we had a, a process where we had subcommittees that started the process and we had full committees that continued the process and we had uh, a regular, somewhat regular process, our ideas would prevail because they make sense in that kind of a yeah. forum. The left continues to try to hide their agenda. They cloak it in these, you know, grandiose propositions like build back better and green new deal it's all the same crap it's more power it's more control consolidated in washington dc yeah. that's what their mo is and it was what it will always be and they can't parcel it out uh, they can't they cannot pass it a chunk at a time yeah. because the folks see through all of it and, and let me put a coda on this right the um the climate and infrastructure thing that's coming our way at the at the beginning at the top of next year, right? If Biden wins, that's a that's a great example. Two trillion dollars, the largest bill other than the tax increase that I can think of. Right? Two trillion dollars other than the annual spending, right? Um, it's a great big giant thing. It's going to be fifteen hundred pages, and it's going to be terrible. And my guess is it's going to go through the House of Representatives, like you know. Straight party line vote. All those guys at the chamber are counting on like carry him. I've said this. I said this in print. I'll say it here. I give the chamber a thousand bucks for every one of their guys who votes for this stuff on final passage. Who votes against this stuff on final passage? I mean, because Kendra Horn's not going to vote against that on final passage. Of course, Small's not no, going to vote against. They all have excuses for why they voted for. It. Sure. There's going to be something in there. Sure. I didn't like everything, but this this was really important. We got to build back better. Yeah. Right. That full so. stop. Anyway. Yeah. Hey, let's shift gears and talk about California for a couple minutes. And uh, I know you got to go to lunch. We could unpack California in depth, but I wanted to talk generally about it uh, for now. Do you think people recognize that uh, there's a there's a, a message war going on about what's happening in California? Gavin Newsom and the the folks who who built the uh, the system that is in place to deliver electricity in the state of California. Have, are, are trying to blame it all on climate change. Do you think they are? Do you think this is working, or do you think people see that that they're this state and the state of California is a foreshadowing of what would happen if 
the Green New Dealers got in the White House. You have had 10, 20 years now of systematically dismantling the electricity system in California and replacing it with the one that they envision, mainly wind and solar. Mm -hmm. They've had a rapid deceleration of certainly coal plants. Mm -hmm. they've, had a they've had a decommissioning of nuclear plants. They did not build enough gas to fill the hole. And now we have blackouts when people want, God forbid, want to use their air conditioners when it gets a little bit hot. I don't, I mean, I guess my question is, are people buying this climate change business that this is all a result of climate no, change? I no, don't, I don't see how they no, could be. No, no, What you know, what's going on, in, what, what's happened in California is, you know, even Gavin Newsom in his, in his more rational moments has, has pointed out that perhaps we need to put a little pause on this thing and make sure that we have power going forward, right? Because if you're a governor, um, you can't have blackouts. You just can't. Um, you can blame it on whatever you want to blame it on, but you can't have blackouts. I, I recall one governor got recalled for, for blackouts, it, 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 which it, arguably wasn't his fault. It, I would argue that this is his fault because well, he's inherited, you know, he's he, one of the, he's in the crowd there with Governor Brown that. and everybody else. Gavin and have Garrett, Gavin inherited this problem, but he didn't do anything to make it better, right? It's probably a good way to think about it. The, the, um, the argument about it being climate change is ridiculous. The, 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 the folks who think about this stuff seriously in California know what it is. The only question they're, they're working around now is trying to figure out how do they fix it. Um, and it's, it's a twofold problem, right? And, and one problem is really hard, and that is people use power when it's hot and when they want to. And that usually means late afternoon when they get home from work or when they, you know, the kids get back or whatever, they turn the air conditioners and the TVs on. Boom, there's a big ramp, right? Um, that doesn't match up with the generation profile. The other thing that California's got a problem is, is that they rely on imported power from the West. Right. Uh, from the rest of the West. From, right. From and they the, don't they don't count that against their quote unquote greenhouse gas targets, of course. No, why would you? But the, or the, the the stuff that comes in by boat. Yeah, the thing across from the from Asia, they don't count that in their right. greenhouse gas profile either. So you know they they um, you know what they found in this in this what they've been finding out in the last couple of months is is that the West is now tight enough on reserve margins that they don't have any they want to share. Well, or else so, they they're not going to allow their folks to right, they're go not gonna, without power. No one's sorry, right. California don't have any to spare today. Would love to help you, but it isn't happening this week. Right. So so the Californians are going to. Are going to try something i think that i don't understand they're going to argue they're going to they're going to institute time of use rates which is sort of the holy grail of of the left right that um you know electrons are not all equal electrons during peak periods should cost more than during dull periods okay that's fine but it essentially amounts to the it essentially amounts to looking at the the consumers in california and saying you know what the problem is? The problem isn't wind and solar. The problem isn't that we've closed gas plants. The problem isn't that we, is not that we closed the two nuclear units in California. The problem is you guys want electricity when you shouldn't want it. And, you know, this is the moment that I've been kind of waiting for where the weaknesses in the system get blamed on consumers because consumers are not going to tolerate that explanation. Their attitude is, well, really? That's weird, because for the last 140 years, we've been able to get electricity whenever the hell we needed it. And nobody, you're the first person to ever say, you shouldn't want it at this time. And I, I just think 
there's going to be a huge pushback. California, I'm about to say something that's going to get me in trouble, but one of the advantages California has is, is that it has the smallest, um, as a percentage, I think it has the smallest native-born population in the country. It has a lot of immigrants, a lot of immigrants from places that aren't used to having electricity 24 hours a day. You know, you try this stuff in Missouri, they would throw rocks through the windows of the governor. It might work in California, but I don't think it's going to work even in California. It's a it's a um, it's a huge problem, and the only way they're going to fix it is is they can't import any more power from anybody else, right? They can't rely on that. Wind and solar are full out, right? There's a mismatch. The only answer is to build more natural gas plants. And I just can't imagine, not this governor, maybe the next governor is going to do that. But somebody's going to do it because it's the only answer. You can't have the state of California experience rolling blackouts every week or so. Yeah. You just can't. I mean, it just can't happen. Yeah. I think, though, that the... I'm never going to underestimate the ability of the voters to tolerate this business after the gas tax thing, the, you know, the ballot initiative where they rejected the, the Californians are paying 50% more for their electricity than their neighboring states. California imports almost all of their oil, even though they're a huge producer of oil. I was going to say, I mean, you know what the problem California, is. If you want, if you love what's going on in California, you'll love the Biden White House, because that's what they want to do to the rest see, of the country. And that's where, see, that's, see, this is where I, this is where I'm not too worried about it because I know that the vast majority of the country doesn't want that. So we're not going to get it. Um, you know, the democracy for all its failings still works in this country. If you don't want something, you don't get it for the most part, right? At least not for any length of time. The thing about California is, you know, a thousand people move out every day. And those are mostly native borns. And they get yeah. replaced by immigrants. And in a lot of cases, people come to this country, they just think that's normal. They have no baseline. And, you know, what's happened in California in the last generation is it's suffered an enormous drain of the kind of people who would lead the resistance on something like this. Small businessmen, um, you know, my parents, they moved to Nevada. They couldn't stand it yeah. anymore. Everybody's part of the California yeah. diaspora. You know, I, when I've, I've, I've been to India a few times. And um, when I first started going, it was very normal for the power to be out in the afternoon. And the folks I stayed with were, you know, hey, don't just do me a favor. You got something you need to do between the hours of one and three. Probably think about, you know, re rejiggering your schedule. Yeah. Very. It was. But the thing is, they. The last the, the time after I went, it was just every third day or so. The time after that, there was high speed internet and there was no issues with the grid. And that's what they wanted. I mean, they made progress. They got out of that sure. situation. Sure. This is a pretty advanced economy. I, I don't that is I, pretty sophisticated. And they're literally creating an environment where well, they're going the other way. The thing that bothers the thing that should this is this is beyond energy, right? But it's energy is a touch point on it. The, the the relevant part of this thing, or an important part of this, is that the rich in California have insulated themselves from the consequences of their decisions, right? You know, if you're a rich person in California, you don't really care about rolling blackouts because you got a microgrid, or you got a generator in your house. Yeah. You know, if you're a businessman in California, unless you've unless you're a complete and utter moron, 
you've purchased yourself some behind the meter generation, right? And yeah. so what you wind up with is a is a balkanized system where the well-off get electricity and the middle class and the poor don't. And that is something we don't like to talk about in this country. Yeah. It's it's it is not accidental that California is has the highest rate of income inequality in the United States. It's no accident that California has the highest rate of adult illiteracy in this hemisphere. You know, California is it is marked by incredibly high levels of inequality and a complete indifference. Orange man, bad, and all a, his fault. And a complete indifference. Trump, 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 Trump's fault, Trump's on, fault. On the part of rich people to poor people. And yes, and that's that's the kind of stuff you get. And it is a tragedy. It is a sad, sad thing because it's such a great state. It was such a great state. And the and the folks that are all on board with this. I mean, the thing about, I have this axiom, I have this, this theory, and that is, is that all of the things that the progressives want, the left wants, says that are, you know, uh, that they're for or, or are striving to achieve. You literally flip the script. Like they're the ones doing it, right? If they say they're for this, whatever this is, generally speaking, their policies are the reason for that exists. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's amazing to me how people don't see past that. Well, it's just, it's shocking because so. it, it requires second order thought. And then it, it, you know, it, look, most people, most everybody wants to do the right thing. They see income inequality, they want to fix it, right? Um, the problem with our friends on the left politically is, is that they always seem to come up with an answer that relies either on the perfection of government or the perfection of human beings. And you and I both know that government isn't perfect and human beings aren't perfect. Yeah. I wish it was a lot easier to sell free markets and and rule of law and contracts and sort of all the bedrock things that, you know, make, make this, make the interaction between people, the best equation, the best produce the best outcomes for both people, because it's a lot harder to sell to constituents that I did nothing today. I actually blocked that bill and I tried to kill that project and I've done more for you as a result. Well, it, it's right. It's I mean, not, that's the problem with this, with with our side, sort of how we view the world, right? It's not an easy sell if you're a because, politician. That's because everyone we think we think in terms of theory instead of instead of people. So, rule of law exists to to help you. Doesn't exist because we like it. it. Exists to help you. Anyway, well, on that note, uh, we wandered all over the place. Um, hopefully we will, uh, sharpen the knife a little bit going forward, but, uh, just wanted to sign off now and, and we'll see you next week. Peace.